You're listening to audio from Plank Grove Harvest Church located in Crossville, Tennessee. If you'd like more information about our church and its various ministries, please visit our website at www.plankgroveharvest.org. Welcome this morning. Glad you're here. It's good to see all you ladies in your pretty dresses and it just is very encouraging. It's kind of old-timey in a way, but it's really it's really good, and I appreciate you girls dressing up, and, and you guys, you did the best you could, and I appreciate that too. That was such a good psalm this morning. I'll take up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. This was sung during the, the, the great halal, those, those psalms that were sang as they went up, as they went up to Jerusalem, as they traveled the Jews from all over, and they go up and they sang these different Psalm 113 through 118, and they sang those, and, and they told them to each other to encourage each other and everything. And it says, I'll take up, that was one of the cups. I'll take up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. And it says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And, um, and that was to be read at Passover. The saints that passed in the past, the saints that will pass in the future, and the fact that Christ passed uh, so soon after Passover. Oh, Lord, truly, I am your servant. I'm your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosened my bonds, and I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving. I'll call upon the name of the Lord. Now in his presence of all his people, in the courts of the Lord's house, in the midst of you, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. That was a good start. Thank you, Strong, for reading that this morning. And uh, we're going to study this morning. We're going to read an awful lot of things there. Where's my? Um, primarily, we're going to be reading from Luke chapter 23. And we'll skip around a little bit there. We had that good Passover meal um, uh, here at the church on, on Wednesday night, and it was really good, and hopefully you can make it next year. So um, important, it's one of those things that he tells us to remember, until I return, do this in remembrance of me. And we, we consider that very much tied to communion, but he's talking about that Passover meal. That's where he was at when he said, do this in remembrance of me. And so they were taking that Passover meal together and and it was so interesting that uh, uh, right before that, we saw this last week on that, on that um, triumphal entry where he comes into Jerusalem riding the donkey, coming through the eastern gate, also known as the beautiful gate. It was so uh, important, it was so real that this Muslim man named Saladin uh, in 1100, because Jesus said, I'm coming back through the eastern gate. And Saladin, a Muslim, reads the word of God and says, I'm going to block up that gate. I will stop the Messiah from coming back through that gate. And it's just so silly what men will do to try to avoid the power of Christ when he stands on the Mount of Olives. He's coming back through the gate, and we can look forward to that on that day. Um, it just makes me laugh in a way. There's no work of man that will keep the will of God from being completed. This is a Charles Spurgeon quote. It says, if Christ says, ask and it shall be given you, Jesus does not speak in ignorance, but knows what he affirms. We may be assured that there's no forces which can prevent the fulfillment of the Lord's own word. From the creator and the sustainer of the words I say unto thee, settles all controversy forever. He said he's going to do it. He's going to do it. He says he's coming back. He's coming back. He said as he, he told the disciple, I'm going to come. I'm going to be killed, but on the third day I'm going to be raised again. And uh, so that last week of Christ, it was just a real wonder for his men to sit there with him and him talk about those things. They couldn't foresee all that he was talking about. He did speak to them in parables and kind of analogies a lot, and it was hard for them to, to really, you know, they could see it looking back, but looking forward, they couldn't really understand a lot what he was talking about. And to sit down 
Adam, with that Passover meal, this meal I have fervently desired to eat with you. He tells them that I couldn't wait for this meal to come so I could sit with you guys and explain how I satisfy all these parts, the bread and the wine and so on, and how the lamb was me, the first lamb that was slaughtered and the blood put on the doorpost, and now I'm fixing to be slaughtered on the cross, and the corners of the cross will have my blood on it, just like the corners of the doorpost were. And they're like, oh, that's interesting. That sounds like that could come into something, you know. But they had us cheated death a hundred times before. Crowds surrounded him and he passed right through. He went to the one, the one point they were going to throw him off the cliff. And it says he just passed right through him. And they, they're like, man, we've seen this trick before. You, you can't kill this man. This guy's bulletproof. And they just, they just, couldn't, they just couldn't wrap their mind around those, those things that he was telling them um, were going to happen. And maybe, maybe tonight... Maybe he'll do just like he did before. Maybe this is just another parable, and he'll tell us about these things. But at the end, we're going to escape, and we'll be back here next year. Because if you like to eat with us this year, you'll like even better to eat with us next year. We'll get a better spot. We'll get a better land. We'll get some better herbs. We'll get better cooks. And we'll be back here next year, and we'll enjoy that together. <laughs> hey, we had good cooks. I, I mean, i got to tell you, Jan, you guys did a great job. Loretta and Jan did a great job on that. And uh, we were really blessed by that. And and now all we need is people to clean it up. It's still in a pile in the back. So if you're feeling froggy, you can come this week and, and clean up some of that stuff, all the cups and things. But you girls did a great job on that. And I was talking about the disciples, not the girls. So don't be twisting my words. I know how you guys work me. But, uh, but dramatic events are like that. Um, I was talking to uh, Hope this morning. And uh, we're super happy you're here, Hope, you visitors that are here. Jesse, we've heard a lot about you, honey. I won't make eye contact. I won't make you nervous, but we're glad you came, honey. Warren, I can't tell you, man. Look at my Bible I brought, Warren. I brought the Warren Bible. Warren gave me this Bible a long time ago, and it's been a blessing to me, man. I appreciate it. I love you, man. I'm glad you're here. And uh, he was a real encouragement to us for a, for a time, and he was here for a time, and, he was, and, he's, uh, and he's been gone. But uh, I'm glad you're here this morning, and Jenny, and, and, and all you others that came. If I missed you, I'm sorry. But I'm glad you're here, and it's been a real blessing for us to see you here. But it was like waiting for Christmas for a child, or like I was saying, I was talking to Hope this morning, she was here, and uh, she said, oh, man, look, the fairground sign is up. I can't wait for the fair to get here. I'm like, honey, that's coming in August, you know. They do got a snazzy sign with the chickens on it. It's fun. And she's excited about it coming, and we look forward to those things coming, and we know they're going to come. Christ tells us he's coming. We know he's going to come, and... And the, the disciples, he told them, I'm going to die. They're going to put me in the grave, but three days later I'm going to arise. And they know it's coming, and they're eating a Passover meal, but they can't see it until after it passes. It's like, like I said, like Christmas, you wait, 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 especially as a kid. And then it finally is Christmas morning, you run downstairs, and then it's over. And you're like, hi, I can't believe it came already. Now i got to wait another year. And time goes forever when you're a kid. But, but with them, they were the same thing. They're like, it's coming Jesus tells them it's coming, and then it comes, and they're like, I can't believe it happened. And they're looking back at it, and looking back on it, they write the Gospels. They're not writing the Gospels going forward. They're writing the Gospels after these things have occurred, and they can, they can write it all now and look at it and say, this is how it happened. He told us it was going to happen, and this is how it happened. It's amazing. He did exactly like he said he was going to do. And I was thinking about this as I was trying to prepare this, this message this week, and I thought, you know, a lot of times there's an expectation. Luckily, you guys' expectations for me is pretty low, but in a lot of cases, you expect a pastor to bring this really deep word. And I'm telling you, we sing these songs. I love to tell this story. You know, soon and very soon, or, you know, he's going to return. You know, how's it go? Soon and very soon, we're going to 
see the king. Man, like a steel trap there. And the old rugged cross, you know, we sing these songs and they become trite to us and they become old to us. But, but like that song, I love to tell the story. It'd be better just to tell the story like the book tells us to tell the story than to try to add a lot to the story or to try to make it all whiz-bang and jazz it up so that, you, so that people are excited about it. It's exciting enough. The word is there to edify us, to build us up. And so I thought we'd read a lot of this this morning and then we'll comment on the scriptures as we go through there. Um, let's start there in, in Luke 22, in verse 67. If you recall, so we have the Passover meal. And then Jesus takes them in. They go to the garden. And he tells them, you know, watch and pray. One thing um, uh, Brother Mark told me one time, a long time ago, he says, says, watch and pray. He doesn't say bow your head and pray. He doesn't say close your eyes and pray. He says, watch and pray. Why are they watching? They're watching because the bad guys are coming. You can't go and stand post. You can't do fire watch. You can't be the outpost, the listening post, out there in the fighting hole, 200 yards in front of the line, with your eyes closed. You've got to watch and pray. You've got to watch so that you're aware that the enemy's coming, and you've got to pray that God intervenes. And those men weren't doing their job. They were tired. It was a big party. They'd cleaned up the party, and they were tired. I bet the girls slept good that night. Did you sleep good, Loretta, after your cook down? They cooked from... About, I think Jan was up here about about 8 a.m., and then they left here about 8 that night with a little break in between to go get more groceries. They were tired. And so Jesus tells them, watch and pray. Well, they fail. And he goes to them, it's too late now. They're here. Oh, it's too late. Garden, and Judas uh, hands him off with a kiss, and, and Judas goes and does his thing and, and tries to give the money back when he realizes his error, and it's too late. And, and he's taken first before the Sanhedrin. So the Sanhedrins are the, the religious experts of the day, the prophets, the priesthood. And he goes before them. The Sanhedrin, it, it has Pharisees and Sadducees. And these guys make the, the, the different uh, theological decisions for how we're going to do things. And they also had a lot of influence with the local government. So the Romans were in charge, but the Sanhedrins did have some influence, particularly with Herod and Pilate to get their way done, but they had to do it in kind of a weaselly way. But so Jesus ends in the garden. He's taken by the Sanhedrin. And now when he's with the Sanhedrin, verse 66, as soon as it was day, so they grab him in the nighttime when nobody can see. They won't take him publicly. They got to sneak attack him. As soon as it's day, the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, came together and led him into their council, saying, If you're the Christ, tell us. But he says to them, I tell you, uh, you will by no means believe. If I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then they all said, uh, are you then the Son of God? So he said to them, you rightly say that I am. And they said, what further testimony do we need? For we have heard it ourselves from our own mouth. All right, break time. We've got to find the, the top drops here. So all these men, all the men, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the disciples, Pilate, the Romans, the guards, the people, they all knew he was innocent. And Christ really puts them on the spot here. He answers them in a really truthful and direct way. Um, uh, 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 he says, uh, first he says, if I tell you, you will by no means believe. So if I tell you again, you're not going to believe me. And then basically he says, and I already told you, and you're not going to believe anyway. 
And even if you almost believe you're not going to let me go, you will by no means answer me. They have no answer. So they, you know, he, he had already told them. Now I'm telling you again. And even if I tell you, you're not going to believe. And even if you did believe, you're not going to let me go. And just know that no matter what you do, the Son of Man will sit at the right hand of the power of God. And speaking to them, he speaks, you know, they like to use that word. He speaks truth to power. He speaks truth to power, except that he's the power. They think they're the power. And then he traps them because they're so silly. Because the very best that men can do is nothing compared to what the creator of the universe can do. Oh, so you're telling us then that you're the Son of God? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. They're like, oh, whoops. <laughs> he just told them. I told you. I told you before. I'm telling you again. You're not going to believe me. You're not going to let me go. You know, you're telling us that you're... Yes, I'm telling you. A bunch of dummies. And they just won't believe. What further testimony do we need? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. How pitiful. So they take him from there to Pilate. They don't have the authority. The Jewish were so oppressed by the Romans that they didn't have the authority to, to prosecute, to actually put to death. It had to go through the Roman uh, rule of law there. And it says, Then the whole multitude of them arose and led him to Pilate. Verse, we're at 23, verse 1. And they began to accuse him, saying, Who began to accuse? The Sanhedrin accuses Christ before Pilate, is who it's talking about. We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, is Messiah, a king. That's the word Christ is the word for Messiah in Greek, a king. Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered him and said, It is as you say. So Pilate said to the chief priests and crowd, I find no fault in this man. I mean, we already know that the Jews are under the authority of Rome. You can say whatever you want. Oh, I'm the, I'm the president of Crossville. Oh, you can say it all you want. It doesn't make you the president of Crossville. You're just a, a crazy man, but you're not a danger. Um, but they were more fierce, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the men, if the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. So Pilate is so mentally weak, and so really in his position, he doesn't have the authority to do a whole lot without going to the upper management there with the Roman uh, and it's hard to pass information from where they're at. It's, it's relatively fast, but they got to get it from here to Rome and back. And it's too far. And so the regional guy is him, and the, and the backup regional guy, or the other regional guy, is Herod. And this is not the same Herod that persecuted Jesus and his family when he was a child, but the same Herod that killed John the Baptist. This is Herod Jr. And he, and, and he has his own thing going on. We'll get to Herod in a second there. But Pilate just was so wimpy so afraid of offending the Jews, so afraid of causing um, a problem there, it was a big deal. You wanted to keep your position of authority in that area, but at the same time, you couldn't let these people get out of control. Couldn't take too much authority, or they'd come and kill you for trying to usurp the throne. But you couldn't take too little authority, or the people would run over you, and then uh, they'd be in charge, and you'd just be a puppet kind of leader, which he was more than he, he realized. He knew Christ was innocent, but he had to do something to appease the Israelites or the Sanhedrin or the, the, legal, the legalistic types, for lack of a better word. And, uh, and by the way, Pilate and the Jews had got off on the wrong foot anyway uh, because he had done some things with a, a sacrifice and things like that. 
that had messed it up. He had got in. He had done things that caused discord amongst the Jews and himself, and he couldn't have that. If the word gets back to Rome, they come and kill Pilate. The word gets back to Herod. Herod could rat Pilate out, and they'll kill Pilate, and vice versa with Herod. It's a very manipulative, accusatory kind of leadership going on there. They're all trying to work their way to the top. And so when he hears the words, when Pilate heard of Galilee, he says he stirs up the people uh, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning with Galilee, beginning from Galilee to this place. Pilate hears Galilee. Oh, Galilee. Oh, I'm not responsible for Galilee. You know, I'm only responsible for Cumberland County. You're in Putnam County. You're right there in Cumberland Cove. We're like Putnam County, White County, and Cumberland County all come together. And the road's real crummy right there. I don't know if you've ever been there. Nobody wants to take responsibility for the road in that triangle, right? That's what's going on. He's like, I'm not, uh, oh, Galilee, that's, uh, that's, Herod's, that's Herod's thing. So as soon as he heard, verse 7, that he belonged to Herod, he's going to dump Jesus off on Herod, uh, who was also in Jerusalem at the time. Now, when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired a long time to see him because he had heard many things about him and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. And he questioned him with many words. Uh, sorry, I'm going to get my eyeballs on here. He questioned him with many words, and Jesus answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. Then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. That very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other, for previously they had been at enmity with one another. By the way, uh, before we get too far, Pilate's wife, they put a lot of, and maybe we don't put enough emphasis on dreams, but I think because we take so much stuff into our minds, a lot of the dreams we have are very distorted. We take a lot of video in, we take a lot of movies in, we hear a lot of radio and things like that, internet things. And I think it gets kind of cobbled up in the supercomputer there, so we don't have really clear dreams maybe as some of these people that didn't have those, those things. But they put a lot of emphasis on dreams and the power of dreams. And uh, Pilate's wife told him, do not get your hands dirty with this. And I was tormented in my dream. You'll find that in Matthew, um, Matthew chapter 27. his way to get it off his lap. That's where he listens to his wife. And then... But all with different details. It's the whole car wreck thing where depending on you're looking at the intersection, the four-way intersection, and the car wreck happens in front of you. And he hoped to see some miracle done by him. He was glad because he, he thought he had the circus in town. He was looking for some magic tricks to make him feel better. And, and uh, maybe this guy will take care of some. Maybe he'll you know, give me the Midas touch and I can turn things into gold. Or maybe he'll heal some family member or, or take some pressure off me that I have. And it's so, so, whatever, lazy or arrogant of him to look at him in that way. He had three years to look at Christ. He had three years to evaluate Christ and what he was doing in his work amongst the community and so on. And here he is, exceedingly happy. He gets a one-on-one -on -one with Christ, which he could have called for any time. He's the king, the regional king. 
but he chooses until this time, and he hoped to see some miracle done by him, and the only thing he receives is silence. Then he questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. Why? Why did Jesus answer nothing? If Jesus promotes his own, again in Matthew, in Mark, and in John, if he promotes his own innocence, he's let go. And he must not be let go. No man takes my life, I lay it down. But these, and, and Pilate said, don't you know that I have the power to, to free you? You don't have the power to do squat. No man takes my life, I lay it down. And so he, he has to be careful. I mean, he understands man, he's God, and he knows what Herod's heart is like and all those things. But in this, he has to be careful or Herod lets him go. He has to be careful or Pilate lets him go. And there, he has to be the sacrifice for men. You've got to understand how important it is that Jesus went to the cross willingly. He wasn't forced at gunpoint to the cross, spear point to the cross. He was taken to the cross because he allowed himself to be taken from the cross. Pilate asked him, are you a king? Yeah, I'm a king. What are you the king of? I'm of a kingdom you don't understand. I have countless angels at my call. If I called them, it'd be all she wrote. We know that one angel kills 120, uh, 120,000 Assyrians in a single night. What about a myriad of angels? How many people do they destroy in a breath? Right? We have no standing before angels, before God and his power. He says, I'll go. I'll go to the cross. I'm going to go. You're not going to send me. I'm going to go. That's a big difference. And so with Herod, uh, he makes a bad call. He was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him. When Herod sees Christ again, he will not be exceedingly glad. He'll be exceedingly terrified. So, Because though he had a lot of power while he was on earth, in eternity we're, we're, just, we're at the mercy of God. You accept Christ now while you're alive, and then the window of opportunity closes once you pass from physical life to physical death to eternal life. When you cross through that doorway, your options have changed. You no longer have the opportunity to say, oh, I, I see I've made a bad call here. The reality is you have to make the choice this side of eternity. You can't wait till eternity and see it proven true and then say, okay, I accept Christ now. It doesn't work that way. If that was the case, all the Jews, uh, the Baal-worshipping Jews, they would have been like, oh, man, oh, I goofed up, sorry, God, and uh, can we be in heaven now? And he'd be like, no, you chose Baal. Go with Baal. See how that treats you. Enjoy your time with Baal in eternity. So the next time he sees Messiah, he's not going to be as exceedingly glad as the first time. In fact, he's going to be uh, terribly remorseful, terribly sad, and terribly distraught as he uh, spends eternity separated from God. And once he realizes there's no circus tricks today, he immediately goes into this, this bully mode, this arrogant bully mode, and he's, six, he's not even doing it himself. He's just mocking. It's one thing to pick a fight with someone. It's, somebody else, it's something else to pick the fight and then have this guy attack him, and that's what he does. He's not even man enough to, to strike Jesus himself. He sends the Romans after him who have swords and shields and spears and all those things and whips and just the sheer number of them. It's not a fair, it's not a fair fight, but he sits in a position of arrogance and points them out. So go ahead, Herod, and get your licks in now. Um, the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him, and Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt, mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. They put him, it said, I read one, like this sparkling, this really white robe, uh, like you would really, uh, like a person who was a judge, a really high-ranking official. They dressed him really nice. And then they went to shaming him. 
you know. It's uh, taking a poor man and putting him in a Armani suit. And inside the Armani suit still a poor man. So we can mock him. You didn't buy that suit. You got it at the Goodwill. Somebody turned it in. It's an Armani suit, but you're not worthy to wear it. And that's what they were kind of doing there. So, but this is what's crazy. Is that despite Herod's actions right here, and the actions of Pilate, and the actions of the Roman, a little bit of simple faith would have provided the miracles that Herod was looking for. Placing your faith, your obedience to Christ in him provides a miracle that changes a dead man into a living man. Though you were born dead in your trespasses and sin, you he made alive in Christ Jesus. He takes a dead man and makes him alive, and there's nothing more miraculous than that. You want to see a miracle, put your faith in Christ. So anyway, his arrogance kept him from Christ, so he sends him back to Pilate, verse 13. Then Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, he said to them, You have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. Pilate was sick to his stomach when he sees them drag Jesus back over there. He thought Herod would deal with it. Herod's not going to kill an innocent man. He's going to make fun of him, maybe, but he's not going to kill him. He could make fun of him because the Jews were under oppression by the Romans, but he's not going to kill him because he's innocent. He takes him back to Pilate. Pilate, this question, it sounds a little more dry than it is, but think about it. I can't believe you brought him back to me. I thought you were going to handle it. How come you didn't handle it? That's what he's saying. As one who misleads the people, indeed, having examined him in your presence, I've found no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. Neither did Herod, for I sent you back to him, and in need nothing deserving of death has been done by him. Hey, why don't you go back to Herod? Hey, why don't you go back to Pilate? Why don't you go back to Herod? <laughs> Eventually, somebody's going to have to deal with this man. I'll therefore chastise him and release him, for it was necessary for him to release one to them at the feast. Every year at Passover, they had a scapegoat sort of thing, a prisoner that they would free. It was part of their tradition, the local tradition, and the Romans were in on it. They're like, sure, you can have one of your own hooligans back if you want, and uh, we'll give it to you. And they all cried at once, saying, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, who had been thrown into prison for a certain rebellion made in the city and for murder. Pilate, therefore, wishing to release Jesus again, called out to them. And they shouted, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! So this shouting out, by the way, if you went back to uh, Matthew or to Mark, you'll see that there's this praetorium. So there's a building where they're doing the judging from. And the Jews won't go inside because they don't want to be unclean. So Pilate's inside, the Jews are outside. And that's why it says they're shouting back and forth. They're like, hey, uh, send, send Jesus to be crucified. He's like, no, I'm going to send uh, Barabbas. Or, I mean, I'm going to send Jesus. No, no, send Barabbas. And they're yelling it back and forth because the Jews didn't want to get tainted by going to this Gentile building and get that on them, possibly touching a Gentile or something, and then be unclean for the Passover meal. And so that's what this yelling back and forth is going on. And he said to them the third time, What evil has he done? <laughs> what evil has he done? Yelling across there. What evil has he done? I found no reason for death in him. I'll therefore chastise him and let him go. But they were insistent demanding with loud voices that he be crucified and the voices of these men and of the chief priests prevailed. You know, it's, it's so sad what's going on here with these people. So very much like today, the voices of good men are silenced or were silent. We can look, if you want to go, just flip the page there, 23 verse 50. Look at 50 and 51. 23, 50 and 51. Now behold... There was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and a just man. He had not consented to their decision indeed. He was from Arimathea, 
a city of the Jews who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate, asked for the body of Jesus. So we got Joseph of Arimathea, we got Nicodemus, and possibly others, and we got this council, this council of the Sanhedrin that we saw back there in 22, they made this vote jointly. We have city councils, we have school boards, we have governors with, with cabinets, we have presidents. We got all these guys, there's good people on those boards, but the wicked shout them down and they're like, well, maybe I'll, I'll get my chance later. I'll, I'll work on that later. Maybe I can just whisper a word. There's a time for good men to act and they missed their chance. I mean, again, it's in God's timing, but they missed their chance. The voices of the good men were silent. They chose to be silent. Joseph of Arimathea does act later, as does Nicodemus. They go and take his body down, but it's a little bit too late. You know, okay, that was a good, that was a good move. You know, so honorable, good job. But it uh, would have been nice if you'd have said something beforehand. If he's innocent and you have the vote, then vote innocent. If he's guilty, even if it's going to put you at risk of your life, and he's guilty, then vote guilty. But do what the do what the right thing to do is. If you know to do right and do not do it is sin. So do what is not sin and be righteous. Anyway, first, uh, let's keep on going there. And so uh, the voice of these men... Yeah, to say nothing is to agree. Right, right. They were insistent, demanding with loud voices. This is like, this is like the angry mob. This is the out of control mob. And again, you got to understand where Pilate's coming from. His neck is on the line. The Jews get out of control here. They kill Pilate. So it's better to just give him the man, in his opinion, to just give him, because he did an unrighteous thing as well. Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested. And they released to them the one they requested, who for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison, but he delivered Jesus to their will. The Bible says the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked above all things. Who can know it? Um, it says there is a way that seems right unto a man but, the, a man, but the end thereof is death. The will of man, the heart of man is just that way. We do the things that appeal to us most in the flesh, and that's the things that we lean towards very difficult for us to listen to the spirit's voice and hear and be obedient to the things that he calls us to do it's hard because you're kind of overriding the main programming that you have in your body which is your flesh i like how clothing feels i like how my shoes feel i like how food tastes i like how drink tastes i like how my bed feels in the morning it's very hard to override things that i like I like to look at some things I shouldn't look at. I like to listen to some things I, I shouldn't listen to. I like to gossip. I'm greedy. I'm lustful. I'm all these things. I have to press those things down, and I have to allow the Holy Spirit to speak over those things. It's not man's will that's important. It's God's will. He delivered Jesus to their will. Well, these same people, some of these people, a few days prior were saying, Hosanna, save now, I pray. And now they're saying, crucify him. The will is very fickle. It's like a high school girlfriend or a high school boyfriend. One minute they love you, the next minute they hate you. One minute you're on the in crowd, next you're on the out. And that's what they did here. They're so fickle. But even in their will, God's will is overriding it, and his way is being accomplished. Uh, let's see here. Verse 26. Now as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon a Cyrian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. 
looking at our cross here, I really did try to make this. I made it a couple years ago. Um, I tried to make it the right, about the right dimension, assuming that Jesus was somewhere between five eight and six five, say an average sized man, somewhere in there. Um, this would be about what it took to fit him on there. And uh, so this this bottom log right here, we we carried in two pieces. We don't know how the cross was. We don't know if it was a single cross or an actual T-shaped cross. They had a couple different styles. They had one with the T on the top, like the Tennessee T. They had this style right here, and they had the single pole. It just depended. Just luck of the draw, what you got that day. But it says that Simon had to help carry it. So Strong is a strong fellow, William Strong, and he and I and Charlie Alva, so we had Charlie like the mule. We bent him over and laid this on his back, and then we balanced it and brought it out here. But I'd say this bottom log weighs somewhere around, what do you say, 250, 300 pounds maybe. Amen? Yeah. And I'd say this one here weighs, say, 120, 30. This one's a little punkier. It's not as solid of a log. Um, so this is not a one-man carrying the cross kind of thing. And this is white oak. Maybe they had something lighter like pine or poplar or something that was lighter. I did bring my, I went and picked these this morning for you. This is, this is a very Tennessee thing. Renetta, when she was a kid in school, back when they could do things like this in school, the school teacher brought this in, the dogwood. And then the, the, the little, what is it, the story, the tradition is with the dogwood. You know, it has the spots of red on the four corners and it has the crown of thorns in the middle. And it says of the dogwood, you know, that it's got the twisty trunk and it did that after the original dogwood was used for the cross of Christ so that no one could ever be killed on a dogwood again, you know and the wimpy branches, you know, so it wouldn't support a lynching and all those things. Um, anyway, uh, we, we don't know the size of the log. We don't know the weight of it, but I'm saying it's probably between 150 and 250 pounds. And you're talking about a man who's been beat to the point that his, his actual organs are exposed on the back because they had flayed the meat completely off his back and the muscle tissue with the cat of nine tails. And then we've, we've drained him of a large part of his blood by putting the crown of thorns on him and, and just by tormenting him, tormenting him and things like that and, and in him sweating, not having a lot to drink, the stress of being under that pressure. And so he's trying to carry this cross. And then he's unable to do it, which few would be able to. And so they, they recruit Simon here. And um, so Simon gets a plug in the book. It's pretty amazing, just that one little thing, and he gets a plug in the book, you know. Anyway, a great multitude of the people followed him, verse 27, and women who also mourned and lamented him. This is that lamenting, this is that loud wailing. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters, this is so key right here. Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren wombs that never bore and breasts that never nursed. And they'll begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and on the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? If they're willing to take the most innocent man, the, the people of his nation were willing to take him, parade him naked, beaten with the cross. If they're willing to do that publicly, you wait till the hard times come. Go back to uh, Luke chapter 21. Jesus is God. He's able to see past, present, and future. He knows, as he looks at these people, something that's coming. He's told them it's coming, and they don't believe him. Tear down this temple, I'll rebuild it in, uh, in three days. They mock him. He goes, I'm telling you, it ain't going to be long, and they're going to tear this thing to the ground, and there won't be a single stone stacked one on another. 
And they're like, what are you talking about, man? This is our temple. We're in with the Romans. Everything's going good. Uh, chapter 21, verse 20. When you see Jerusalem, Jesus speaking, surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are in the midst of her depart and let not those who are in the country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babes in those days. For there will be a great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. And they'll fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. Go on back another page or two to chapter 19. 41. Jesus coming down again. This Mount of Olives is a big deal. He's on the Mount of Olives again, overlooking the city. As he draws near, he saw the city and wept over it. First of all, the word wept there isn't like the, like the movies with the little tear that drips. This is lamenting, sobbing. This is deep, emotional crying, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this, your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes, for days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you, and your children with, within you to the ground, and they will not leave you in one stone upon another, because you do not know the time of your visitation. I'm going to throw something on you when you think about this. So this is about A.D. 33, more or less, okay? And, and A.D. 70, Rome is going to come and completely sack Israel. It's going to be completely flat. There will be very, very few people that live in Jerusalem. It's going to be completely destroyed. It, they did. They, they, they would, uh, they would uh, open the women's womb with a sword to kill their babies. They completely ransacked the city. They didn't want any more Jews. They didn't want any more uprisings. They didn't want any more trouble out of them. They, they'd had enough. And they completely destroy. And Jesus can see this coming in the future. But in this moment right here in 19 and, and 41 and 2, if you had known, even you, especially in this, your day, the things that make for your peace, it's really hard. I was kind of looking at this and it said, had the Jews... It, just in kind of figuring this out, had the Jews accepted Jesus as Messiah, I don't know that the cross would have been the same as it was. Had the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees accepted Messiah as a brother, as Messiah, they would have had peace instead of the sword. But they chose the sword over peace. In order to keep the will of God at bay, they thought, they chose the sword over peace. They could have had peace. They could have had it in their day, the things that made for peace. God's ready to bless those that are obedient to him, that are honorable to him, that are doing his will. He's got it all worked out since time, eternity, past. He's got it all worked out no matter. It's the hard thing about volition that we, you know, that's why the Calvinism thing is so, uh, such a big, um, what? It's the big deal right now. Everybody wants to be a Calvinist, right? Because they like the idea of predestination, like it's all decided, and all you have to do is just be you, and it's all decided. God's going to be successful with you or without you. 
the plan is made whether you make a positive decision towards Christ or a negative decision towards Christ. The plan is made and is all taken into account whether a country follows the Lord or discards the Lord. The Lord's going to be glorified either way. His will will not be stymied in any way by a man. If you go forward in the will of God, you as a believer, no matter what happens to the world around us, no matter what happens to our government or our people or our dollar or whatever, none of that's going to matter because if you're in God's will, he's going to care for you until the moment that he removes you from this earth. He's going to care for you even better. If you're walking outside of God's will, he's taking that into account too. And he can work on you and he can change you and he can mold you and he can build you and edify you. He can put people in your path and he can direct you. And if you completely reject God and choose instead to be under his wrath, he's ready for that scenario as well. You're not going to confuse God by, oh, I was going to follow him, but I'm going to decide to do this right here, but then I'm going to follow him. You're not throwing his swerve off. He knows what you are. He's, he completely understands what you are. He completely understands what our president does. He completely understands what the president of South Africa does or the president of, you name the country. He com he's got all that in his mind he's got every possibility handled had the jewish people accepted him as messiah had they stuck with the hosanna thing and not tried to persecute him unto death had they received him as their master and 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 lord and savior he the cross would have looked different however the cross looks like it looks because men rejected christ i'm not saying he wouldn't have gone to the cross i don't know how it would have finished out there was going to be a sacrifice once for all men for all time. But I'm telling you that they had the opportunity for peace and they chose destruction. And believers every day and unbelievers every day have the same option. You have the opportunity for peace with God or you have the opportunity for wrath. And it's really up to you. Every man has to make that decision for himself. I just saw that. It said in John uh, 1, 11 and 12, he came to his own, but his own received him not. He was the light in the darkness. He came to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. He came to them. And when they rejected him, it says that there became a time of the Gentiles, an age of the Gentiles. Thank God, you Gentile, except for you. The rest, <laughs> all you Gentiles, thank God. Because he, he opened the door that Gentiles might be saved that Gentiles might have a better idea of who Messiah is, that there is a God, there's a creator, and he came and he lived and he died and he, he came for you. You're no more des deserving than any chosen Jew is. In fact, you're less. In fact, to truly be saved, you have to be grafted into the Jewish mind. That's a, I mean, it just doesn't even make sense. But that's what God decided. If the Jews reject me, I'll go to the Gentiles. If I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Thank God. Thank God he made a way that all men could be drawn to him. That's a, it's an amazing, amazing thing. The Jews chose destruction. It's terrible. And we, we make the same choices. We have the same opportunity to make the same choice. Super hard to grasp. Again, to not make a choice is a choice. You're right. Yeah, you say, well, one of my friends, and I told you this the other day, he said, he said, well, I always thought I'd just wait until I was on death's door, and then I would choose. Except you don't know when death's door comes. People get hit by buses, and trees fall on people. I don't know if you watched the 
I'm not a big golf fan, but you know, the Augusta Nationals was yesterday and, and trees started falling on people. You know, you're watching golf and a tree falls on. That's your day. Let me tell you, when that happens, you know, that was a word from God. Uh, today's your day, bud. When you get hit by the bus, um, when the tree falls on you, when the meteorite falls out of the sky and bonks you on the head, you know, that was a word from God. Other things you might question, but those things, you know, you don't know when your last breath is. You can't make that, that statement of someday I'll get right with the Lord. Get right today. Choose peace over his wrath. You don't, you can't, no man can stand up to his wrath. Go back to 23 and back to verse 32. Please. So Simon the Cyrene, we got to go to verse 27. I don't want to miss, oh, we already read that, yeah. 32. There are also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right, another on the left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots, and the people stood looking on. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming, offering him sour wine, saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription was also written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews, or Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who was hanged there blasphemed him, saying, if you're the Christ, save yourself and us. But the others answered, the other answered, rebuking him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you're under the same condemnation? We indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he looks to Jesus. He says to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Assuredly, I say to you, today with me you will be in paradise. This is one of the greatest pictures of salvation the simplicity of the gospel if you confess with your mouth that jesus is lord and believe in your heart god raised him from the dead you will be saved doesn't say baptized doesn't say you got to know the catechism don't you don't have to speak hebrew you don't have to uh, go on the thing where you crawl up the steps to one uh, chapel or another you don't have to do any of those things you look at messiah and you ask for his mercy and he says today you will feast with me in my kingdom. It's that simple. And so many times we try to add a bunch of other, you know, razzmatazz to that or say the sinner's prayer and all that stuff. He, what did he say? He said, Lord, remember me. I'm seeing you face to face. I need you. Okay, today, paradise, you and me. It's super simple. It says, and all this is Isaiah 53 being being um, fulfilled, you know, despised, rejected by men, bruised, striped, pierced. He's completed all he's supposed to do. Now it was about the sixth hour, verse 44, and there was darkness over the earth until about, over all the earth it says, until about the ninth hour. Three hours of complete darkness, there's an earthquake. I mean, this is some scary things going on. They hear a voice then the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was torn in two. The entrance, so we're up, we're up, on the, uh, up, up on Golgotha, but we could look down and we can actually see into the temple mount. We can see the temple and the Holy of Holies is facing uh, Christ on the cross. He can look in there and the temple is torn from top to bottom. 
12-inch thick veil, um, like a blackout curtain. And now there's revelation, there's entrance directly, boldly entering the throne of grace. There's entrance directly to the Most High God where it was not available before. Now to all men everywhere, they can reach the Father. And uh, the three hours of darkness and the earthquake and all that caused great fear in a lot of the people, the veil tearing, the people raised from the dead, and they begin to walk, all these graves ripped open and people walking around, a lot of things going on there. And we have Christ giving up his spirit. When Jesus had cried out in a loud voice, the sun was dark and the veil of the temple was torn in 246. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Right before that, and then in another one of the Gospels, we see the full wrath of God poured out on Christ. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? All of time, he had had this umbilical cord connection uh, to the Father, right? And it's been snipped. And he's completely alone. It says the Father turns his back on his son. He pours out all the wrath for all the sin of all times on Christ, and Christ takes it. Why have you forsaken me? He knew it was coming. He was willing to go, and he did it, and he gives up his spirit, and unto your hands I commit my spirit. He would not commit his spirit to men, the Bible says in John, because he knew what men were made of, but to his Father he gives his spirit. And he breathed his last. When the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. Others said, Surely this was the Son of God. Uh, and the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. The plan that Jesus and the Father had was exactly for this to happen. And I know I said back here that, you know, maybe they'd been at peace with him, maybe it had been something else, but eventually there was going to be a sacrifice of the Son of God to the Father because he's the only innocent lamb that ever lived. Um, and those people that were there they celebrated his first coming on the donkey. And then a couple days later, they're yelling, crucify him. And now they're like, holy cow, what have we done? It says they beat their breasts and returned. The crowd who came together in that site, seeing what they had done. Oh, man, what have we done? We have just killed our only hope. It's a big deal. So then uh, the whole crowd and then all his acquaintance, verse 49, all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Behold, there was a man named Joseph, a good man, a council member, a good man, a just man. And he had not consented to their decision indeed. He was from Arimathea, city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And he took it down and he wrapped it in a linen and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock where no one had ever lain before. That day was the preparation day. And the Sabbath drew nigh. And the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after, and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. And they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. Now, I know you heard all this before. And I wonder if you've ever told anyone else like these women do shortly. If the Lord says that I'll return in the same manner that I left, he's going to do exactly what he says he do exactly what he says he will do and we can rest assured that there will be a day 
like Zechariah wrote of, if you look there, I think we got it, Zechariah 14, uh, 16. It's in the Old Testament, I know. But it talks about this day when Jesus returns, 14 and 16. It shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. Uh, verse 19, verse 20. In that day, holiness to the Lord shall be engraved on the bells of the horses. The pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall, shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts. Everyone who sacrifices shall come and take them and cook in them. In that day, there shall no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. Why won't there be any more Canaanite? Why won't there be any more Gentiles in the house of the Lord? Because we'll be one family. All saved men from everywhere, from all time, will be there celebrating and worshiping in front of the Lord. It says in Matthew 26, verse 13, it says, Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. What does that mean? It means that, and it's true, if we went back and looked at it, you would see it's still in the book. And I mentioned it today, that this woman poured oil on his head and prepared him for, anoint, uh, prepared him for the cross, prepared him for burial. And still today, we mention that woman. He says he's coming back. He said he was going to the cross. He took the disciples back through the Old Testament. He showed them everywhere he was mentioned. And then when they wrote the Gospels, they had to quote those things because he had already told them He's going to do what he says he's going to do. If he says the lady's going to be mentioned, she made it in the book, and she's still mentioned today. He's going to do what he's going to do. Let's read this about him being risen. Uh, Luke 24. Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, and they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened, as they were greatly perplexed about this, that, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. And as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said, Why do you seek the living from among the dead? He's not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again? And they remembered his words. I pray that as we read this word this morning, that you can, I know you've read it before, maybe you've heard it before, maybe you haven't read it. Maybe you should go back and read it in the four Gospels, see how they compare. Some have more detail than others. So that you can remember what happened. So that you can remember that all men at some point turn their back on Christ, but some men receive him. When we see those different people like Pilate or Herod or the Syrophoenician woman or, or uh, the Sanhedrin or the Sadducees or Joseph of Arimathea or Nicodemus or Zacharias or whoever, Zacchaeus, all those people have a time where they're not sure. Thomas, Judas, they have a time where they're not sure. They have a time where they mock God when we're young and we say, uh, we're, we're trying out our new cuss words that we've learned and we say words that we shouldn't use, you know. We, we blaspheme his name. All of us have at times taken his Ten Commandments and, and 
and fooled around with them and played with them and gone too far with them. And he says, he didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. So he makes a way for us, as foolish as we've been, whether we mocked his name, whether we bullied others that were Christian in name, even if they were weak Christians, whether we failed like Peter to defend his name in that moment, he came for you. And I pray that wherever you're at today or wherever you're, you know, that song, I wandered far away from God, now I'm coming home, no matter how distant you are from God, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. It's the day of returning. He came back from the dead. If Jesus had died and stayed dead, we'd be hopeless. We'd be like a Buddhist or a Hindu or, or a Muslim. We'd be just as stuck as they are. We'd be trying to get by on good works, hoping we do more good than bad and make it into eternity, but we're not. We serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. He's He's alive. He's alive, like that song says, and I'm forgiven, heaven's gate is open wide. He's alive. He's alive. Hallelujah. He's alive. I pray that today, if you don't know him, that today is the day of your salvation, that you don't wait another day, that you don't be a Herod and wait and think you'll figure it out later, that you don't be like the, like the governor that Paul spoke to, and he said, Paul, I wish I could believe like you believe. And he's like, I wish you could too. I wish that today, I pray that today is the day that you believe that Jesus come, came to save sinners of whom I'm the worst and you're just as bad. So have mercy on us, Lord. I pray that today is the day of your salvation. We're going to take a moment of just silent prayers. We prepare for communion. I pray that you're, just, you can bow your head. You can watch and pray either way. But as we get our song ready and, and we prepare the table, what we're going to do is we're going to come up up the aisle like this, get our, get our pieces, and then go back around the outside to your seat, come up the middle, get the piece, go back. But while we're, while, uh, as you get your pieces and you go back and sit down, kind of prepare your mind, see what you got that's keeping you from the Lord, and maybe today is the day that you get that repentance and that love that you're looking for. All right, we'll start right here with the front rows. If you would just come up to the front here and then just work your ways around the side to go back to sit down. What do you want? And spoke your name into Great. 
we've gone fully through uh, uh, Matthew around the Passover meal and then in Luke. Um, we have this bread, this traditional Jewish bread without uh, leaven. That's why it's so flat, like a saltine. But Isaiah 53 so demonstrates that, and we saw it with Christ on the cross there. Um, surely he's borne our griefs. He's carried our sor sorrows. We've esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. By his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth, and he was led as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. And when you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, and he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labors of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. It says, <laughs> you shall see, let me see here what it said right there. The pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his You shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied by his knowledge. My servant, my righteous servant shall justify many. He shall bear their iniquities. His offering for sin, he'll get to see the provision, the fruit of his offering for sin. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. He'll get to see the offspring, those that have received Christ. He'll get to see it. But here we have the bruises, the little spots there. We have the piercings. We have the stripes by which we're healed. And then the bread was broken in two already. And the bigger half was the dessert, the apicomen. This was the part that Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. It was this big piece, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When he broke the bread, when he took the afikoman, and he said, this, this is my body. I'm the dessert. Do this in remembrance of me. And he broke it. And he said, blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who bringeth forth bread from the earth. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper. We learned that this is the cup of redemption. The other cups were the ones that got him out of Egypt and, and cared for him along the way. But this is the one, the cup of salvation. This is the cup. We read about it in Psalm 16 this morning. This is the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. I ask you to examine yourself quickly. Has the body of Christ been broken for you? Has the blood of Christ been shed for you? It's been shed. It's been broken. Has it been shed for you? Have you accepted his free gift of salvation? 
Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who bringeth forth uh, fruit from the earth. It says in Matthew that after they ate, I'll not drink again of this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. I don't want you to leave dreary or sad today. I want you to leave joyful that the blood of Christ was shed for you on that day and that you received it and it made you whole and it made you alive. So I got a song. It's kind of an old school song. We got the new and jazzy version here for you. I want us to sing it together. If we can stand together, sing as best you can. Sing loud. I don't want to hear no wimpy singing, especially from the goat side over here. I want to hear some good singing. And we'll, uh, we'll play it there and we'll We'll close with this song, I hope.
Let it ride.